Do you know what I see here? I see every single home wasting money. Why? Because homeowners in L One of the greatest inventions of the 20th century, indeed one of the landmark inventions in the history of the human race, was the work of a couple of young men who had never gone to college and who were just bicycle mechanics in Dayton, Ohio. That part of the United States is often referred to disdainfully as flyover country because it is part of America that the East Coast and West Coast elites fly over on their way to what they consider more important places. But they are able to fly over it only because of those mechanics in Dayton. The Wright brothers' first airplane flight was only about 120 feet, roughly the distance from home plate to second base, and not as long as the wingspan of a 747. But it began one of the longest journeys ever taken by the human race, and that journey is not over yet as we soar farther into space. Man had dreamed of flying for centuries, and others were hard at work on the project in various places around the world when the Wright brothers finally got their plane off the ground on December 17, 1903. It didn't matter how long or how short the flight was. What mattered was that they showed that it could be done. Alas, Orville and Wilbur Wright are today pigeonholed as dead white males, whom we are supposed to ignore, if not deplore. Had either of them been a woman or black or any of a number of other specially singled-out groups, the hundredth anniversary of their flight would have been a national holiday, with an orgy of parades and speeches across the length and breadth of the country. Recently, a reporter for a well-known magazine phoned me to check on some facts about famous people who talked late and whom I had mentioned in my book The Einstein Syndrome. Her editor wanted to know why there was not more diversity among the people I cited. Almost all of them were men, for example, and white men at that. The vast majority of people who talk late are boys, and I had no control over that. In a predominantly white society, it should not be surprising that famous men who talked late were mostly white. No doubt in China most would be Chinese. The reporter seemed somewhat relieved when I pointed out that the distinguished mathematician Julia Robinson and famed 19th-century concert pianist Clara Schumann were among the women discussed in my book. Ramanujan, a self-taught mathematical genius from India, came to my attention right after the book went into print, but the reporter seemed happy to be able to add his name to the list of famous late talkers. This mania for diversity has spread far and wide. When I looked through my niece's high school math book, I saw many pictures of noted mathematicians, but, judging by those pictures, you would never dream that anything worth noting had ever been done in mathematics by any white males. This petty-minded falsification of history is less disturbing than the indoctrination-minded educators who are twisting reality to fit their vision. Those who cannot tell the difference between education and brainwashing do not belong in our schools. History is what happened, not what we wish had happened or what a theory says should have happened. One of the reasons for the great value of history is that it allows us to check our current beliefs against hard facts from around the world and across the centuries. But history cannot be a reality check for today's fashionable visions when history is itself shaped by those visions. When that happens, we are sealing ourselves up in a closed world of assumptions. 
There is no evidence that the Wright brothers intended the airplane to be flown or ridden in only by white people. Many of the great breakthroughs in science and technology were gifts to the whole human race. Those whose efforts created these breakthroughs were exalted because of their contributions to mankind, not to their particular tribe or sex. In trying to cheapen those people as dead white males, we only cheapen ourselves and do nothing to promote similar achievements by people of every description. When the Wright brothers rose off the ground, we all rose off the ground. People are all born ignorant, but they are not born stupid. Much of the stupidity we see today is induced by our educational system, from the elementary schools to the universities. In a high-tech age that has seen the creation of artificial intelligence by computers, we are also seeing the creation of artificial stupidity by people who call themselves educators. Educational institutions created to pass on to the next generation the knowledge, experience, and culture of the generations that went before them have instead been turned into indoctrination centers to promote whatever notions, fashions, or ideologies happen to be in vogue among today's intelligentsia. Many conservatives have protested against the specifics of the things with which students are being indoctrinated. But that is not where the most lasting harm is done. Many, if not most, of the leading conservatives of our times were on the left in their youth. These have included Milton Friedman, Ronald Reagan, and the whole neoconservative movement. The experiences of life can help people outgrow whatever they were indoctrinated with. What may persist, however, is the lazy habit of hearing one side of an issue and being galvanized into action without hearing the other side. And more fundamentally, not having developed any mental skills that would enable you to systematically test one set of beliefs against another. It was once the proud declaration of many educators that we are here to teach you how to think, not what to think. But far too many of our teachers and professors today are teaching their students what to think about everything from global warming to the new trinity of race, class, and gender. Even if all the conclusions with which they indoctrinate their students were 100% correct, that would still not be equipping students with the mental skills to weigh opposing views for themselves in order to be prepared for new and unforeseeable issues that will arise over their lifetimes after they leave the schools and colleges. Many of today's educators not only supply students with conclusions, they promote the idea that students should spring into action because of these prepackaged conclusions. In other words, vent their feelings and go galloping off on crusades, without either a knowledge of what is said by those on the other side or the intellectual discipline to know how to analyze opposing arguments. When we see children in elementary schools out carrying signs in demonstrations, we are seeing the kind of mindless groupthink that causes adults to sign petitions they don't understand or, worse yet, follow leaders they don't understand, whether to the White House, the Kremlin, or Jonestown. A philosopher once said that the most important knowledge is knowledge of one's own ignorance. That is the knowledge that too many of our schools and colleges are failing to teach our young people. It takes a certain amount of knowledge just to understand the extent of one's own ignorance. But our educators have given assignments to children not yet a decade old to write letters to members of Congress or to presidents, 
spouting off on issues ranging from nuclear weapons to medical care. Will Rogers once said that it was not ignorance that was so bad, but all the things we know that ain't so. But our classroom indoctrinators are getting students to think that they know after hearing only one side of an issue. It is artificial stupidity. Years ago, when Jack Greenberg left the NAACP Legal Defense Fund to become a professor at Columbia University, he announced that he was going to make it a point to hire a black secretary at Columbia. This would, of course, make whomever he hired be seen as a token black, rather than as someone selected on the basis of competence. This reminded me of the first time I went to Milton Friedman's office when I was a graduate student at the University of Chicago back in 1960, and I noticed that he had a black secretary. This was four years before the Civil Rights Act of 1964, and there was no such thing as affirmative action. Milton Friedman had the same black secretary decades later when he moved to the Hoover Institution, and she was respected as one of the best secretaries around. When I mentioned to someone at the Hoover Institution that I was having a hard time finding a secretary who could handle a tough job in my absence, I was told that I needed someone like Milton Friedman's secretary, and that there were not many like her. At no time in all these years did I hear Milton Friedman mention, either publicly or privately, that he had a black secretary. William F. Buckley's wife once mentioned in passing, at dinner in her home, that she had been involved for years in working with a school in Harlem, but I never heard her or Bill Buckley ever say that publicly. Nor do conservatives who were in the civil rights marches in the South, back when that was dangerous, make that a big deal. For people on the left, however, blacks are trophies or mascots, and must therefore be put on display. Nowhere is that more true than in politics. The problem with being a mascot is that you are a symbol of someone else's significance or virtue. The actual well-being of a mascot is not the point. Liberals all across the country have not hesitated to destroy black neighborhoods in the name of urban renewal, often replacing working-class neighborhoods with upscale homes and pricey businesses, neither of which the former residents can afford. In academia, lower admission standards for black students are about having them as a visible presence, even if mismatching them with a particular college or university produces high dropout rates. The black students who don't make it are replaced by others, and when many of them don't make it either, there are still more others. The point is to have black faces on campus, as mascots, symbolizing what great people there are running the college or university. Many, if not most, of the black students who do not make it at big-name high-pressure institutions are perfectly qualified to succeed at the normal range of colleges and universities. Most white students would also punch out if admitted to schools for which they don't have the same qualifications as the other students, but nobody needs white mascots. Various empirical studies have indicated that blacks succeed best at institutions where there is little or no difference between their qualifications and the qualifications of the other students around them. This is not rocket science, but it is amazing how much effort and cleverness have gone into denying the obvious. A study by Professor Richard Sander of the UCLA Law School suggests that there may be fewer black lawyers as a result of affirmative action admissions to law schools that are a mismatch for the individuals admitted. 
Leaping to the defense of black criminals is another common practice among liberals who need black mascots. Most of the crimes committed by black criminals are committed against other blacks. But again, the actual well-being of mascots is not the point. Politicians who use blacks as mascots do not hesitate to throw blacks to the wolves for the benefit of the teachers' unions, the green zealots whose restrictions make housing unaffordable, or people who keep low-priced stores like Walmart out of their cities. Using human beings as mascots is not idealism. It is self-aggrandizement that is ugly in both its concept and its consequences. Some who assume the posture of citizens of the world view the survival of their own particular society as a matter of no great moment, viewing it as simply a matter of choosing among alternative political and social arrangements. But history shows that more than transformation is involved. A society or a civilization may be destroyed and its successor improvised from the ruins, not just the physical ruins, but from anarchy as the ruins of law and order and ignorance as the ruins of systems of education and other instruments of cultural transmission. After the decline and fall of the Roman Empire, it was centuries, some estimate a millennium, before the standard of living in Western Europe rose again to the level it had reached in Roman times. The survival of a society or a civilization is not just a question of a preference for one particular set of political or social arrangements over another. It is easy to discuss alternative arrangements around a seminar table, as if transformations were no problem. But the painful alternatives amid the ruins can be very different. Europeans lived for centuries with the presence of ruins more magnificent than anything they were capable of creating or even restoring. It is hardly surprising that they looked back at the ancients with awe, long before they developed the modern Western tendency to look forward to greater accomplishments in the future than those of the past or the present. Another modern Western tendency, at least among the intelligentsia, is to be anti-Western, to apply double standards that ignore or excuse behavior in non-Western societies that would be excoriated in the West or to picture the sins of the human race as if they were peculiarities of our society. Specific examples include the history of conquest, slavery, and war. Conquest While European imperialism has been dominant in the past 500 years, in the preceding centuries, Europe was itself subjected to foreign conquests. It was invaded from Asia by the Mongols, to whom the Russians paid tribute. It was invaded from the Middle East by the Ottoman Empire, whose armies reached the gates of Vienna in the 16th century. Europe was invaded from North Africa, and the whole Iberian Peninsula was subjugated for centuries by the Moors. There was nothing peculiarly European about either conquering or being conquered, or about changing from one of these roles to the other in the course of history. The year in which the last of the North African conquerors was driven out of Spain, 1492, was the same year that marked the beginning of Europeans' creation of worldwide empires. Conquest, like slavery, existed on every inhabited continent and involved all the races of mankind as both conquerors and subjugated peoples. Slavery and conquest existed in the Western Hemisphere before the first white man set foot on the shores of the Americas. The Zulus were conquering other African peoples when the British arrived in Southern Africa and conquered them all. Europeans also displaced other conquerors in Asia and among the Polynesians.
What was different about European imperialism was how widely scattered its empires were, which was possible only because of revolutions in naval technology and a pre-existing base of wealth available to finance overseas expansion. But morally, what the Europeans did was the same as what non-Europeans had been doing for thousands of years. This is not a moral justification for either, but it is an argument against the selective localization of evil. Against that background, it is possible to see what a gross distortion of history it is for schools to be asking American school children such questions as how they would feel if they were the indigenous American Indians being forced from their land by the westward movement of invaders from Europe. These children, with no historical background and coming from a society which condemns conquest, cannot possibly recreate the attitudes and beliefs which prevailed among either the Indians or the Europeans of earlier centuries. While today's American children would of course think it wrong to take other people's lands by force, the American Indians had no such conception and took one another's lands by force long before they ever laid eyes on a white man. Indeed, Indians often joined with the European invaders to attack other Indians in order to share in the spoils or to exact revenge for these other Indians' prior spoliation of them, including the taking of their lands and the enslavement of their people. When Cortes marched against the Aztec capital of Tenochtitlan, he led an army of 900 Spaniards and thousands of Indians. No doubt those Indians forced off their lands in the United States or Brazil were bitter at being on the losing end of so many battles, but that is wholly different from a belief that battles were not the way to settle such things. No one wants to be conquered or enslaved, but that is wholly different from not wanting to be a conqueror or enslaver, or thinking that either or both are morally wrong. This is not a question of moral relativism or situational ethics. We may today condemn all conquests at all periods of history, but that is wholly different from imagining that such feelings were those of Indians in centuries past. Clearly, such how-would-you-feel questions are put to American children and adults to advance a contemporary vision and a contemporary agenda, rather than to provide a realistic understanding of history. It is a betrayal of the trust of those who send their children to school to be educated, not manipulated. Studying Western imperialism in isolation from other, non-Western imperialism, such as that of Genghis Khan or the Ottoman Turks, makes all the injustices, oppressions, and horrors incident to imperialism itself seem like depravities peculiar to the West. The tendentiousness of such a view of history stands out particularly when efforts are made to depict the United States as especially guilty of sins common to the human race around the world. One such history, after mentioning the Americans wresting the island remnants of Spain's empire in the Pacific and Caribbean during the Spanish-America War, declared that Russians were not comparably aggressive overseas. This was said not by a street-corner demagogue, but by an academic scholar at a prestigious university. Russians, in reality conquered vastly more area than the United States ever did and continued to conquer after the United States began to withdraw from its few colonies. The difference was not in how aggressive Americans were, but in the fact that the United States had a powerful navy and the Russians did not, so that the Russian Empire expanded through land conquests of contiguous territory. The word overseas allows the author an escape hatch, but the word aggressive describes an attitude not a capability. 
The prevalence of European imperialism in general, since the 16th century, is likewise due to special capabilities rather than special attitudes. Whatever their attitudes may have been in the Middle Ages, Europeans lacked the military and economic capabilities required to become imperial powers on the world stage, just as most non-European countries have lacked that capability since then. The history of which peoples, nations, or civilizations have conquered or enslaved which other peoples, nations, or civilizations has been largely a history of who has been in a position to do so. Housing. Economic facts and fallacies. Quote, the biggest economic fa fallacy about housing is that affordable housing requires government intervention. Close quote. Now, Tom. Tom, I have, to, I have to remonstrate with you. No poor person would be able to live on the island of Manhattan or in the city of San Francisco if there weren't rent control or subsidized low-income housing that these cities forced builders to set aside when they built their high-rises for rich people. Isn't that manifestly true? No, it's not even remotely true. <laughs> All right, explain. <laughs> explain. Well, first, first, first history, uh, there were more people, I believe, living in Manhattan prior to the, to the rise of, of rent control and prior to the rise of government housing projects. Uh, my gosh, at one time, the Lower East Side of New York was the most tightly uh, packed uh, place in the world. Uh, New York and San Francisco have very long rent control laws, old ones and severe ones. Uh, and yet, when you look at the cities with the highest rents in the country of any major cities, they are number one, New York, and number two, San Francisco. So what's going on? Well, why, why does the political system produce a perverse outcome, which is then supported in the press? Try to mention a repeal of rent control, and the New oh, York Times yeah. will go after you immediately. Uh, abs absolutely. Well, what happens in rent control around the world, really, because it's been tried so many times, uh, is that people, uh, if the rent control is uh, severe, the people either uh, reduce the amount of housing they build, or they stop building housing altogether. Yeah. And so what happens, the political authorities are then confronted with a situation. Do you want to have a situation where there's no new housing built and the old housing is wearing out, usually faster under rent control because the landlords don't have to keep it up as much? Uh, and so they, they step in and they'll have one, some kind of modification so that, well, let's say we're trying to protect the poor, so we won't regulate luxury housing. Of course... Luxury housing and ordinary housing use many of the, much of the same labor, the same, same materials. And so, therefore, all the materials that would otherwise have gone into making ordinary housing goes into building luxury housing. Mm. Uh, economic facts and fallacies once again. If we go back to the beginning of the 20th century, before government intervention became pervasive in housing markets, we find, and this is to me one of the most arresting assertions in the book, we find people paying a smaller percentage of their expenditures for housing than at the end of the 20th century. In 1901, housing costs took 23% of the average American family's spending. By 2003, it took 33% of a far larger amount of spending. What's going on? What's going on is that they're uh, restricting uh, the amount of housing that can be built. And obviously, if you restrict the supply while the demand is growing, the prices will go up through the roof. Qui bono? Who, do, who benefits from this arrangement? Politicians, most of all. How? 
because they get the reputation of being for the poor and the downtrodden, and that they're, and that they're uh, setting aside affordable housing units, usually in some token amounts. Uh, they are preventing the evil landlords from raising the rent by rent control. And, uh, and they make, if they are able to keep the public paranoid that if they take off the rent control, you know, it'll be just sky-high prices. Uh, and so they, they gain by that. Both the landlords and, and the tenants lose. They lose in different ways and to different extents. Uh, the tenants lose because they can't find a place to stay. Uh, the landlords lo- lose because uh, they don't make the, pro- the profit they would have made otherwise. The builders lose because there, there's no demand for, uh, for ha- apartment buildings if they, nobody can make a profit on it. All right. Economic facts and fallacies once again. Quote, where builders are allowed to construct homes and apartments without severe government restrictions, even growing populations and rising incomes do not cause housing prices to shoot up because the supply of newly constructed housing keeps up with the growing demand as in Houston. Now, would you please contrast Houston with our own coastal California? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> there couldn't to be a greater contrast. you an easy one. <laughs> yes, that's an easy one. Houston doesn't even have zoning laws, but whereas to build anything in coastal California is just an ordeal. I mean, you, you have to not, not only go, you have to go through all kinds of planning commissions. I've had the misfortune of sitting in on two planning commission meetings uh, I don't know what it did for my blood pressure watching these people. Uh, the, the discouragement is huge. So someone estimated, for example, a real estate company that a house that would cost $155,000 in Houston would cost a million dollars in San Francisco. Right. The right. same house. Who are the mascots of the anointed? You talk about the mascots of the anointed. They're people whom, whom they choose to um, back and whose rights are supposed to override other people's rights. The homeless are a classic example. Uh, I'm, I'm appalled when I see people out there in the street uh, giving money to the, to the home. I'm able-bodied men. I yeah. think one of the classic pictures to me was in San Francisco when there was this uh, able-bodied white man out in the street begging. And there's this black lady coming along there, uh, very modestly dressed like she didn't have, but she's stopping to open her purse to give him some money, you know. And I thought, good heavens, have we really come to this? And we've been brainwashed by the anointed into thinking this is what we ought to do. What do you say to guys who bum money off of you? Not all of it can be repeated on, on, on the air. <laughs> but the fact is they don't get any money. They don't. And, I, and people who complain now about all these people begging in the street, as a simple answer, don't give them money and they won't be in the street. But isn't that hard-hearted? And as a conservative, doesn't that make you a cruel, hard-hearted, well, uh, non-compassionate I'm, I'm, person? I'm, I'm, I'm depriving them of their booze and drugs. That's really what you believe? Yes. Now, would you help somebody if you knew it was going for food? Yeah, in fact, I, in fact, I must confess that just recently I, I did have, give out some money to an elderly lady uh, in St. Petersburg, Russia, because I'm told that they've been devastated by the fact that their pensions have been uh, ruined by the inflation that they've had over there. And so I, there are people, you know, like that. But, uh, but now we have a program. Not an able-bodied guy walking up to you. No, good heavens. Some of these guys look like they could be in the Olympics. <laughs> That's true. Young American watching this program, 18, 19, 20, what advice do you have for a young, for someone who's just the age now that you were as a Marxist living, in, living on 130-something street? It depends on what his circumstances are, but I would say learn all you can before you reach conclusions. 
There are plenty of people out there who have prepackaged conclusions for you to reach. You need to have a, build up a level of knowledge and experience so that you are no longer um, putty in the hands of somebody else who has his own agenda. Tom Sowell on government assistance, quote, do people who advocate special government programs for blacks realize that the federal government has had special programs for American Indians, including affirmative action, since the early 19th century, and that American Indians remain one of the few gr groups worse off than blacks? Close quote. Yes. So the point there is, do not look to government action or to politics to solve to solve yeah, anybody's problem. Is that if you think that, that the government actions is, is, is the answer, at least look at the facts and, te and test your belief against facts rather than just keep repeating words that are popular. We're raising whole generations uh, who, 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 who regard facts as more or less optional. Um, you have kids in, the, in, the, in elementary school who are being urged to take stands on political issues to write letters to congressmen and presidents about nuclear energy. You know, you know they're not, even, not a decade old and they're, and they're being thrown these kinds of questions that could uh, absorb the lifetime of a very brilliant and learned man. Uh, and they're, and they're, they're being taught that it's important to have views and they're not being taught that it's important to know what you're talking about. It's important to hear the opposite viewpoint and more important, to learn how to distinguish whether, why viewpoint A and viewpoint B are different and which one has the most evidence or logic behind it. They disregard that. They hear something and they hear some rhetoric and they run with it. Somewhere watching this interview, there's a young Thomas Sowell. There's an African-American who's smart and wants to do something with his life. What's, it seems to me I've al we've already got one piece of advice you'd offer to him is stay away from the from the races industry. Stay away from the what, race what hustlers. What advice race hustlers? What advice would you give a young Thomas Sowell? How do you make something of yourself as an African American in America today? The way anybody else would. You equip yourself with skills that people are willing to pay for. Tom Sowell on diversity, quote, if there is any place in the Guinness Book of World Records for words repeated the most often over the most years without one speck of evidence, diversity should be a prime candidate. Is diversity our strength or anybody's strength anywhere in the world? It has not been our diversity, but our ability to overcome the problems inherent in diversity and to act together as Americans that has been our strength. Again, how did diversity, how did diversity come to be this kind of totem in society to which we must all? Oh, it's, it's applying the propaganda uh, uh, principles of, of Nazi uh, propaganda minister Joseph Goebbels, who said that you know people will believe any lie if it's big enough and told often enough and loud enough, and. Uh, this lie has been told. If you, if you look at, see, diversity is really another name of what used to be called Balkanization. And they had to get rid of that because if you, if you looked at the Balkans, you would see that the horrors that have gone on there 
have outstripped anything that has ever happened in the United States. Uh, back in, in the 1970s, when I was running a research project in Washington on American ethnic groups, uh, a Yugoslav uh, scholar came by to visit me and he said, you think blacks and whites in America have a problem? The problems of blacks and whites in America is nothing compared to the problems of Serbs and Croats in Yugoslavia. And if you read the horrors that have occurred there, uh, I'll, I'll just mention one, throwing people's babies in the air and catching them on bayonets and forcing the parents to watch it while it happens. I mean, we have not reached that point yet, even though we are headed in that direction. Uh, diversity is not their strength. The ability to deal with the problems of diversity, that is our strength. All right. All was. At the same time you're getting all this melding of diversity, there's an extremely narrow ideological conformity that's being enforced. So we have diversity in the way people look, mm -hmm. the ethnic groups are from which they come, the parts of the country from which they come. But once you arrive, you'd better start thinking the way we do. Yes. I still get emails from students, you know, who say that, you know, when they raise any issues uh, that go against the professor's ideology, they just get ridiculed. And let's say you're on the admissions committee at Harvard, mm. and you're going to choose so many people. You're going to let people in for a variety of reasons. One is sheer academic merit. Uh, they scored 1,600 on the college boards. Mm. That's a good entry. They've got a brilliant uh, academic and athletic background, mm. and they happen to be a virtuoso violin player. Mm -hmm. you know? oh, yeah. And the violin player helps. Yeah. Or let's say they come from Nevada, mm, and they don't right. have a lot of Nevadans yeah. at Harvard. And let's also say that they uh, are come from uh, Sri Lanka. Mm -hmm. They don't have many people from Sri Lanka yes. there. And let's also say that, that they also are African-American. Mm -hmm. And that that ought to be a factor in, in choosing from that pool. Maybe that's one of the because, considerations. Because what? Uh, because diversity of a student now, body I, I is a healthy factor. I, I'm, I'm fascinated with the extent to which words, we, we're, we're conditioned to react like Pavlov's dog to words. I hear diversity. Someone was asking me. That'll make me look bad, Professor. <laughs> Someone today who was, a, who, was a, who, was a, who was a trustee of a college was saying that the, they were going to pick a new college professor. I said, what you should do is have a stopwatch there and just count how long it is until each of the uh, contestants says the word diversity. Yeah. And the guy who says it, you know, he's 35 minutes into the interview. And the other guy who says it, you know, the first sentence, the guy who said it takes 35 minutes he should be at the top of the list. The guy who said it in the first sentence should be at the bottom. Because the well, question well, is... What's wrong with diversity? I don't get the point. My point is that this is a word that has become magic. What does it mean? If anything, are you saying to me that all black people are alike, therefore you've got to mix and match by race? It's not diverse unless it's diverse along these no, dimensions? No, I'll tell you what I'm saying. I'm saying that I think that it would be different to have people of different kinds of experiences... Uh, and we mentioned Sri Lanka, didn't we? And you know, and it'd be interesting to have some people uh, with an Asian oh, wait, background. No, wait, wait. wait, wait, an Asian background, African American uh, people uh, that come from uh, Fifth Avenue and Park Avenue, as well as from Henderson, North Carolina. All of that would make a healthy student body. You mean to tell me? I don't me. think everybody ought to come from uh, the sons of of uh, Harvard graduates. All right, my daughters. May, may, uh, Partly because they're not always the best students. No, that's right. But, but uh, uh, all right. Um, that argument, I, I think, that, does, that doesn't make it. I, I, I uh, f slip my point there for, for a minute. Well, I mean, I, I, 
you have thought long and hard about this, and, and much longer than I have. And you bring to no, bear but wait, wait, much, but, look, but that, that, that's the theory. That's the theory. Unfortunately, process. unfortunately, the facts are quite different. In places like Harvard and Stanford and right. Cornell, Duke. what you ha what you have is the black son of the black doctor right. who right. lived in the same right. neighborhood right. with the white son of the white doctor. Right. No, I got and you. now yeah. you're giving me diversity because these two people well, probably were not go no, someplace. No, 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 not necessarily. They have scholarships that they offer to kids who but, are not but, the but son that, that, of the but, but now we're getting away from the whole racial thing. I'm saying the racial thing has been used as a proxy for something that it's not a proxy for because the vast majority of blacks who go to places like Harvard and, and Cornell and Stanford are not blacks from the ghetto. Those are blacks from out there. You know, they're from Malibu. Uh, you know, they're from Pacific Palisades. Uh, they're but, from Winnetka and okay, so forth. And they're, they're from the very same neighborhoods. They're from the very same neighborhoods as the whites are there. Mm -hmm. And so and so now you call it diversity right. because you see something with the, with, with the naked eye. Explain why multiculturalism, if you would, is bad. I guess it starts from a false premise, uh, which is that there's something uh, that, all, that all cultures are equal in some undefinable sense, which has never been the case. I mean, some cultures are better at some things, worse at other things, uh, and at particular times in history, uh, one group's culture may be ascendant and another time another group's. But what you almost never see is what they assume is a norm, namely all groups performing pretty much the same in all kinds of fields across the board. That you, you, you can go through centuries of history without finding a single example of that. You, you say that that assumption, in fact, holds different groups down. You write, quote, multiculturalism, like the caste system, paints people into the corner where they happen to have been born, but at least the caste system doesn't claim to benefit those at the bottom. Absolutely. So when the multiculturalists say, for example, that uh, the schools should not try to uh, uh, make uh, black students uh, speak standard English, uh, the difference between speaking standard English and not speaking standard English can be huge in terms of your, your job, your careers, and all sorts of other things. The key word among advocates of multiculturalism became diversity. Ah, yes. Sweeping claims for the benefits of demographic and cultural diversity have prevailed without a speck of evidence being asked for or given. Name a few institutions in which diversity is championed without, without evidence. Gosh, the question would be, name one way. Well, that isn't the case. Uh, I would say the whole Ivy League, uh, Stanford, uh, Berkeley. Corporate America? Yes. It is, it's really it's really miraculous almost. I mean, I can't think of a word that has gained such widespread use and which is utterly unchallenged without one speck of evidence. If you look at societies that are diverse, they have all they can do to avoid uh, b mutual bloodshed. I mean, India, for example, is very diverse. And, and you know, the... the, the it bar barely coheres as a nation. Uh, that's right. When, when, when India uh, was given its freedom by Britain and split into India and Pakistan, I mean, the number of people slaughtered between Hindus and Muslims ran into the hundreds of thousands. I counted, I got on Amazon and counted the number of, and just very quickly, counted the number of opportunities to buy something with your name on it, and I think I stopped at 57, but uh, I know those are all uh, kinds of things, including essays, but how many actual books have you completed since you started writing them? 
Oh my goodness! You know, I I have I've been asked that question. I've never actually counted them, uh, partly because it depends on what you mean. There are books that are original books. There are books that are collections of previous writings, and so on. And there are monographs and so forth. But I've never really tried to keep track. But it's a, it's a few dozen. At this point, um, uh, which one of the, all those books sold the most? Oh heavens! Basic economics not only sells the most, and English has been translated into. Uh, seven or eight languages. What would you say would be the most important thing, and I know this is a, a simple question, most important thing or things that people who read that book will learn? Oh my gosh, that is tough. But I guess they'll, they'll learn what economics is all about, which, which is more, more than just the sum of, uh, of, the, of the topics. And in the first first uh, chapter, I point out that economics really, I, I use, elaborate on a, a definition from the London School of Economics, that economics is the study of scarce resources which have alternative uses. In other words, uh, there was no economics in the Garden of Eden because everything was available in unlimited, unlimited quantities. But... I think in thinking generally, whether in economics or otherwise, too many people do not begin by saying, what are the inherent constraints of the situation we're talking about? And, and they act as if you know, they're God on, 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 on the first day of creation and can follow whatever policy seems to them best. You know, but by the time, when each of us enters a world that is already completely elaborated and complex before we ever got here, and so you make your decisions within that context. And if you don't think of it that way, uh, you, you can have all sorts of utopian notions. Uh, to give one obvious example, I, I, I hear I, from time to time people complain, you know, that George Washington, uh, Thomas Jefferson uh, condoned, condoned slavery. Slavery was there for centuries before George Washington and Thomas Jefferson were ever born. The, uh, and neither of them thought that the office of the presidency had any power to do anything about it. Uh, Lincoln was able to do something about it because he did so not simply as president, but as the commander-in-chief in a war. And what he did applied only to people who were in rebellion against the United States. But there was no basis otherwise. And so they, if, if, if you can't think in terms of what were the con things uh, confronting the people who, who made decisions, it, nothing is easier than to sit, sit there today and say, oh, th this should have been done, that should have been done. And that's not taking the past as it was. It's, it's treating the past as if it's just the present taking place in earlier times. And that is not the case. When um, Yale University um, took the name John Calhoun off of uh, one of their buildings, what was your reaction? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> By this time, I had given up all hope for the academic world, and so practically nothing surprises me anymore. Uh, if we're, if we're going to, again, look retrospectively, whatever reason his name was put on there, uh, it, it was there, and, and I don't know anything that has happened since then has made Calhoun any better or any worse than he was when, when that decision was made. If you're going to go back, the first that you're so desperate for grievances that you have to go back into history to find them, that really uh, uh, says something. We talked about the impact of Vietnam and Watergate on the country. Uh, what about the impact of slavery on the country? Great, and in any number of ways. But the question is... 
the thing that always gets me is that the past, whatever it is, good, bad, or terrible, it's irrevocable. And the only thing we have any influence over are, 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 the, are the present and the future. And nothing that we do, I, I, I was so pained to, to, to learn that apparently Angela Merkel in Germany felt the need to take in these refugees in order to help Germany live down the terrible record of, of Hitler. Nothing is ever going to change what Hitler did. Nothing. All you can do is do things that are going to have an effect in the present and the future. And the effects that her policies are having in the present have been disastrous. And there's no reason to believe that they're going to be any less disastrous in the future. The policies that are mentioned there, 20 years from now, those policies may not be the policies we're concerned about. But that mindset will still be there. And what makes them tremendously dangerous is that facts that contradict what they believe are simply ignored or evaded. The vision of the anointed. Now, that's, a, that's an interesting title. Who are the anointed? They're the elite in the media, in, the, in politics. All of those who think that third parties ought to be making people's decisions for them. Uh, there, there are people who seriously believe that they are wiser and nobler than others. And that the way to improve society is to have the government force people to follow what the anointed want rather than have, let people do what they themselves want to do. And uh, th there are all kinds of fiascos that follow in the wake of this kind of, this kind of notion. What is the liberal premise? I guess uh, uh, the Rousseau notion, you know, that man is born free but is everywhere and changed, that the real problem of the world is that the institutions are wrong. If the institutions were right, then man, there, there was nothing in human nature that would cause us to be unhappy. It's the fact that we have the wrong institution. What is the conservative premise? That uh, man is flawed from, uh, from day one and that uh, you, there are no solutions, there are only trade-offs. And whatever you do to deal with one of man's flaws, it creates another problem. But that you try to get the best trade-off you can get, and that's all you can hope for. Uh, I've often said uh, there, there are three questions that I think would destroy most of the arguments on the left. And the first is, uh, compared to what? The second is, at what cost? And the third is, what hard evidence do you have? Now, there are very few ideas on the left that can pass all three of those kinds of things. Can conservative ideas pass those? Yes, I think so, because they, they, they don't assume that there, that there is a solution out there. Uh, you know, Adam Smith didn't believe that, the, that, the, that the, the, either the government or the market could solve all problems, that you have to be able to simply tolerate certain things. Uh, and the idea to the left of tolerating any evil, you know, that they want to stamp out the last vestige of segregation. Really? At what price? At what price? What is social justice that they're talking about, the anointed? To say that you're going to have social justice means you've got to have to concentrate power in the hands of some small group of people to override rules and standards and so forth. And people do not see that that's more dangerous than the injustices they're trying to uh, wipe out. How do the anointed refer to people they don't agree with? All sorts of ways. But I think the main thing is they believe that uh, you're not merely in error but in sin. In other words, they can't believe that you're just mistaken. Uh, you, must have, uh, you must have sold out. You must have, uh, must be something warped about you. Do people think you sold out because you're conservative? Oh, some do, some do. do. I, I'm always fascinated with that phrase. I, first time I heard it was at Cornell University. And, uh, and I attacked the president of Cornell University on the front page of the New York Times. 
I want to know if I'm selling out. Who am I selling out to if I'm attacking the president of Cornell University? What brownie points will I get for that as an assistant professor on a three-year contract? Yeah, that's not good. Yeah. No, no. And the, the other thing that always gets me is that uh, the people who are supposed to have sold out typically have less money than the ones who are making the accusation. Uh, years that's ago, always true. I, I remember some student wrote to me and I said, what, what you need to do is make a list of all the blacks on your campus that you think have sold out. And then make a list of those you think you have stood up for the right thing, you see. And then alongside each name, put down the name and, and model of car that they drive. And then see if you want to reconsider what you've just said. People like that uh, find it very hard to believe that someone else could honestly, sincerely, and intelligently reach a different conclusion. They talk about how complex the world is. But it never seems to be complex enough that other people could have read the same evidence they've looked at and come up with a different conclusion. What about uh, mean-spirited? Conservatives are mean-spirited. They're, they're bigots. They don't like people. Well, you know, one of the things I, I, I tell people, people say, you know, you're, you're, you're a very uh, tough person. I, I'm not tough. Life is tough. I'm merely trying to acquaint you with, the, with those facts. Conservatives are routinely blamed for not caring about people. And yet you say just the opposite is true, that it, it's liberals who care about their vision yes. of how the world should be, but not about real-life human beings. Absolutely. I think the busing thing was a classic example. You would be hard-pressed to show how black people, white people, or any other people were benefited by this. But the liberals loved it. It enabled them to be morally superior to those who were fighting against busing. Uh, and and the, the evidence, one way or the other, really did not interest them. Uh, the tragedy, you see, is that the anointed really want to make symbolic statements. And running these programs makes those symbolic statements. They don't really care if in the, in the wake of affirmative action, for example, companies start locating away from minority communities so they don't even get involved in, in legal action. They don't care about that. They've made their statement on the side of the angels, and that's what's important. Uh, it's, all, it's been fascinating to me, these various people who want to spend the taxpayers' money, but who, when it comes to charitable giving and so forth on their own, have no idea of doing that. I, I don't know if you're familiar with the study that's been done of liberals and conservatives uh, 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 donating money and uh, giving time as volunteers and, and uh, donating blood and so on. And contrary to what everybody expected, the conservatives do more of all of those things. Uh, the study showed that if, uh, if everyone uh, donated blood at the same rate at which conservatives donate blood, there'd be 45% more blood donated in the United States than there is. Who are the mascots of the anointed? You talk about the mascots of the anointed. They are people whom, whom they choose to um, back and whose rights are supposed to override other people's rights. The homeless are a classic example. Uh, I'm, I'm appalled when I see people out there in the street uh, giving money to, to the home. I'm able-bodied men. Yeah. I think one of the classic pictures to me was in San Francisco when there was this uh, able-bodied white man out in the street begging. And there's this black lady coming along there, uh, very modestly dressed like she didn't have, but she's stopping to open her purse to give him some money, you know. And I thought, good heavens, have we really come to this? And we've been brainwashed by the anointed into thinking this is what we ought to do. What do you say to guys who bum money off of you? Not all of it can be repeated on, on, on the air. <laughs> but the fact is they don't get any money. They don't. And, I, and people who complain now about all these people begging in the street, as a simple answer, don't give them money and they won't be in the street. But isn't that hard-hearted? And as a conservative, doesn't that make you a cruel, hard-hearted, well, uh, compassionate I'm, person? I'm, I'm, I'm depriving them of their booze and drugs. That's really what you believe? Yes. Now, would you help somebody if you knew it was going for food? 
Yeah, in fact, I, in fact, I must confess that just recently I, I did have, give out some money to an elderly lady uh, in St. Petersburg, Russia, because I'm told that they've been devastated by the fact that their pensions have been uh, ruined by the inflation that they've had over there. And so I, there are people, you know, like that. But uh, but now we have a program. Not an able-bodied guy walking up to you. No, good heavens. Some of these guys look like they could be in the Olympics. <laughs> That's true. They, they, they really are for helping uh, they're for helping people who are disadvantaged, as they put it. Mm -hmm. um, wh whereas I think conserv conservatives want, want to stop people from being disadvantaged. You know, in other words, the, the liberals want to help the poor while they're poor. But really, the biggest benefit is to stop them from being poor. And, th and that they have very little interest in. When they want to help black people, they want to help those black people who are doing something wrong. That is, rioters, uh, uh, ex-convicts. Uh, you, you know, they, they, they want to stop the schools from disciplining black kids, who, males who, dis, who, who misbehave in school. I don't hear them concerning themselves about the blacks who are the victims of the people who are doing wrong. When you wrote this, what were you trying to accomplish with the book and did you do it? Did, were you nailing liberals for 30 years of social policy, what were you trying to say? I was trying to reveal the thinking behind that, the kinds of assumptions, the kind of world that exists inside their mind, and therefore why those assumptions are so dangerous in the long run. It's not just the policies mentioned in, those, in that, in that they book. They think they're better than everybody else. Oh, absolutely. There's no question. Uh, and that's what makes them dangerous. Uh, even all the policies that are mentioned in there, 20 years from now, those policies may not be the policies we're concerned about. But that mindset will still be there. And what makes them tremendously dangerous is that facts that contradict what they believe are simply ignored or evaded. Where does the press fall into this as the United Group? Are they part of the United? Oh, absolutely. They're a major part of it because one of the reasons that people don't get many of the facts that go against what's believed is that the press doesn't choose to publicize those facts. Do you miss teaching at all? Yes and no. Uh, teaching as it is today, no. Uh, teaching as it was when I started out in 1962 at a little college in New Jersey, I really loved it. I mean, uh, uh, the uh, when I taught my last class at the end of the week, I would be looking for looking forward to the next class the following uh, Monday. Over the years, the academic world changed drastically, uh, and uh, now when I got the offer from the Hoover Institution, which which involved no teaching at all, I said, "This is it." It's sad in a sense. There there are many people out there who may well have wanted to teach. But the conditions of teaching at many universities became such that it was, it was just not worth the bother. What's one of those conditions that changed that uh, turned you off from teaching? I think the attitude of the uh, students, the students, the faculty, and the administration, uh, which doesn't leave much else. <laughs> uh, the, the, the students uh, really uh, began to think uh, that, uh, that if they showed up for class, that, that a B was like a constitutional right. Uh, I would get students who could come to me at the beginning of the class and say, you know, I'm a graduating senior. And I said, you believe in predestination. Uh, I, 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 but they thought it was my responsibility to see that they graduated. Uh, I never took that view. So academia, there's a kind of, there's a corrupting influence here. They get money to a large extent from government, all the student loans. Well, all of it with this government is redistributing income from ordinary working Joes to fancy professors. 
fundamentally is what's going on and has been going on for decades. Correct? Yeah, and, and, and of course to the students. And to the students. Who, who, who riot when, 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 when not enough of the taxpayers' money is, is given to them. Has academia in America become, I don't even know quite how to ask the question, has it become more irresponsible? Did it reach a low point in the 60s and it's been recovering since? How do you think of it in those terms? Over, well, I, th- I, I, I think it, it was a break point in the 60s. Uh, I'm not sure it's recovered. I know in the 70s there was a lot of self-congratulation that we no longer have violence on campus. Uh, yes, the campus was were, were quiet, but it was the quiet of surrender mm-hmm. because people who would uh, cause people to riot were not invited on campuses. People who would antagonize the students by their viewpoints were not hired as professors. One of the reasons uh, why a few years ago when uh, the think tanks of the world were ranked, and I, Hoover was ranked number one, but most of the leading think tanks uh, and those rankings were conservative think tanks. And I think there's a very simple reason for it. The kinds of uh, top scholars who would normally be in academia were not in academia. And this is one of the places they could go and work uh, with the kind of freedom that academic uh, tenure is supposed to provide, but doesn't. I mean, I've advised some young people, uh, do not go into, t- into t- teaching in public schools because uh, uh, the odds are so stacked against you. And people can write bad references from you for you, when, especially when you're young and, and, you, and what they say about you is all that the, someone sees. Now, by the time I was uh, teaching at some of these schools, I remember one place where the department chairman used to threaten one of my colleagues that he wouldn't write good references for him. I had, I had, I had uh, you know, I'd, I'd published stuff while I was still in graduate school. I had Milton Friedman and uh, George Stigler to write references for me. What this guy said there as chairman of the department wouldn't, wouldn't matter a bit. But, but most people don't, don't have that uh, situation. Yeah, and so you you have to pick your you have to pick your face. The no child left behind thing with Bush. Mm-hmm. There are kids who go to school to raise hell, and a, and a handful of those can prevent the whole class from learning anything. Now, the logical thing would be to separate those kids out, uh, and let the ones who want to learn something learn something. You yeah. can't do that because the ideology mm-hmm. says no, and so and so you sacrifice whole generations of poor and minority kids for this ideology and this utopian notion. Yeah, and we, and we end up in an odd dystopia, probably. Yeah, and Milton Friedman used to say, uh, the best is the enemy of the good. Yeah. And of course, it would be better if everybody could be educated at the same time. It can't be done. We're raising whole generations uh, who, 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 who regard facts as more or less optional. Um, you have kids in, the, in, the, in elementary school who are being urged to take stands on political issues, to write letters to congressmen and presidents about nuclear energy. You know, you know they're not, even, not a decade old, and they're, and they're being thrown these kinds of questions that could uh, absorb the lifetime of a very brilliant and learned man. Uh, and they're, and they're, they're being taught that it's important to have views and they're not being taught that it's important to know what you're talking about. It's important to hear the opposite viewpoint, and more important, to learn how to distinguish whether, why viewpoint A and viewpoint B are different and which one has the most evidence or logic behind it. They disregard that. They hear something, and they hear some rhetoric, and they run with it. My fellow Americans, trickle down. 
Trickle-down economics has never worked. And it's time to grow the economy from the bottom and the middle out. Trickle, where does this phrase trickle-down come from? Oh, I don't know. It was as far back as, uh, as, the, as the first, as the uh, Roosevelt administration. Uh, there is absolute, it, it is a, an incredible like, thing. It's, there is a non-existent theory that is constantly being attacked. Uh, some years ago in my newspaper column, I challenged anybody to cite any economist outside of an insane asylum who had ever made that argument. Nobody ever, ever, ever came up with a single person. I would say, read my monograph on trickle-down theory. Uh, there is no such theory. It, 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 there, there, some years ago in one of my columns, I defied anybody to name any economist of any school of thought outside of an insane asylum who had ever advanced that theory. I pointed out that uh, Joseph Schumpeter's 1,260-page book on the history of economic analysis, printed in very small letters, you know, has no mention of any trickle-down. There is no such theory. No so, economist has ever held that? No, no politician has no, ever said it? I don't know of anybody who's ever said it. In fact, uh, when I put this out, and I went, went, went out a nationally syndicated column, uh, various people uh, wrote me and said, well, so-and-so said that so-and-so said it. But find me the person who said it. I don't want to hear how you... A said that B said, find me B and show me where he said it. And that was years ago. Not one example has been offered. All right. So trickle-down economics is not a political theory. It is a political, I beg your pardon, it's not an economic theory. It is a political hack phrase used. It's a caricature. Caricature. What causes these riots? Once they get started, the governor does the wrong thing. Yes. But what starts them? Oh, anything can start a riot. The question is, how do you stop them? And uh, James Q. Wilson once said, the only thing that will stop the riot, uh, riot is overwhelming force on the scene. But you see, the, the, what, if, if you put overwhelming force on the scene, that will, that will indeed stop the riot cold. But then the next day, the newspapers will say, why, was, why did the police overreact? I mean, there, there was just a little disturbance, and here come these tons of cops. What is your opinion of Black Lives Matter? I, I think they're one of a long list of uh, groups that are self-serving. One of the leaders of the Black Lives Matter organization, who calls herself a trained Marxist, is now being called a fraud. After property records showed, Patrice Cullors shelled out millions of dollars on four luxury homes, one of them in Los Angeles's exclusive 88% white Topanga Canyon. Page is uh, the leader of the Black Lives Matter of Greater Atlanta Facebook page. Uh, he created a 501c3 nonprofit organization for this group. He raised almost a half million dollars from donors. And you know how he spent that money that was being given to him, oodles of it being given to him for social justice and racial justice. He spent it on his house, on guns, and on hookers. <laughs> It was always a grift. It was always a con, the, the BLM organization. Do you remember sort of what you were thinking, what appealed to you at that time about Marxism? Yes. I mean, there was no alternative being discussed. And what was your wake up to what was wrong with that line of thinking? Uh, facts. A 
elections are not held just for social participation. They're not held just to vent our emotions. They're held to elect people who will hold our lives and the lives of our loved ones in their hands, as well as the fate of the entire nation. And I think to go out as if we're voting for, you know, for a homecoming queen or something uh, is madness. I, I advise in that column that people uh, who really haven't had chance to study these things and know much about it, that their most patriotic act would be to stay home on election day rather than vote on the basis of their whims or, or their emotions, uh, which is really playing Russian roulette with the history of the country. If you were successful, somebody along the line gave you some help. There was a great teacher somewhere in your life. Somebody helped to create this unbelievable American system that we had that allowed you to thrive. Somebody invested in roads and bridges. If you got a business, that, you didn't build that. Somebody else made that happen. Obama has an absolute talent for saying things that make no sense, but not only sound plausible, but inspiring.